2: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Kathleen Burke. Professor Burke is a professor emeritus at University College London. She is the author of a good number of well-received books, perhaps the best known being her biography of uh, Alan Taylor, the historian, and her study on Anglo-American relations, Old World and New World. And today we are speaking about her newest book, The Lion and the Eagle, The Interaction of the British and, and the American Empires, 1784 to 1972. Welcome, Professor Burke.
1: I'm very pleased to be here.
2: Professor Burke, what exactly is the thesis of your book?
1: I mean, that's an, uh, a normal question. It, I find it slightly difficult to uh, to um, narrow down, if you see what I mean. I, essentially, it is the growth of the American empire, uh, how it uh, was in conflict and uh, cooperation with the British empire, then the decline of the British empire, um, and, and the rise of the American. But what I'm interested in, it's not a, a history of the United States, you know, British Empire, or the American Empire. I'm interested in where they meet on the peripheries. That is to say, you know, where they actually do have territorial or at least interest um, conflicts. For example, the uh, what is now the Canadian-American border. You know, for for quite a long time, no one knew where it was which meant that both sides could, uh, could uh, try to invade the other and so forth. Indeed, the Americans invaded uh, Canada for a dozen times uh, during the 19th century. But also, when you go out to the Far East, such as uh, China and Japan, I was interested in how they reacted there together. That is to say, China, of course, broke open... Uh, Ch- I'm Sorry, <laughs> Great Britain, uh, the British Empire broke open China, uh, it forced it to open itself up to trade. Uh, On the other hand, it's the Americans who uh, essentially not broke open because there was no wars, but um, forced the uh, Japanese to open up Japan to external trade, and uh, in both cases recognition of the equality of the Western nations uh, to themselves. But in both these cases, they cooperated, Uh, whereas, as I said before, for most of the uh, time in the United States along the border, it was competition. And the final one is in the 20th century world because there is competition there. You have, you have a, an American empire which is conscious of its power but doesn't really want to go out and do much about it. British empire which is conscious of, of uh, its not lack of power but of the number of other um, empires with, with which it was in conflict such as France and the German empire and the, and the Russian empire. And wanted to co-opt American power, at least get America to work together with it in areas such as the Far East, where as far as the British were concerned, the Americans had great interest and were in some danger, but they wouldn't accept it. The final conflict is really in the Middle East, Um, after the Second World War, the United States. Britain as its one major Western ally. It was the only one after the Second World War from Europe, which still uh, hadn't ever been invaded or um, conquered or occupied and still had great faith in its own state, as well as still maintaining an international empire the the likes of which the world had never seen. But the difficulty is, is that this conflict centered on the Middle East because interests diverge British were concerned about their empire and therefore were concerned about growing nationalism. The Americans were concerned about Soviet empire and therefore were concerned when to co-opt the, the growing middle class. I mean, this is very, very sort of short, uh, um, short sentences almost that don't really uh, make clear the complications of all this. But essentially, the British fell under the blows of the Americans in the Suez Crisis their African empires, the Americans didn't mind, but where they really minded is at the very end when the British said the late 60s, early 70s we're withdrawing all of our forces all of our bases from what was called East of Suez. This is Singapore and Aden and Qatar and the Americans they very much didn't like it. They wanted to end the British Empire, but they didn't want to end the strategic advantages they got from all the British control of strategic places around the world so forth. So in the end, you had an American empire, but no longer a British empire. And uh, for a generation, the Americans, of course, were the only empire. This is clearly going to change now.
2: Uh, so in essence, the book um, discusses very different areas than uh, was dealt with in uh, your prior exploration of uh, anglo American relations, New Old World, New World.
1: Well, that was interesting because I wanted to write well. The term, awful term, holistic. I wanted to I wanted to look at the whole relationship from 1497, when uh, North America, when men from Bristol here in in, in the UK uh, first landed in North America, to um, essentially March 2003, when the British became members of what then was known as the Coalition of the Willing in the Iraq War. In other words, I wanted to look at the whole area, you know, not only just politics and diplomacy and finance, but literary relationship and social things and cultural aspects. And but it got it. Uh, I was struck by one of the reviews, a very nice review in the Times Literary Supplement of London. But um, the reviewer said one thing she hasn't done is to pull out the imperial strand. And I had two responses to that. First of all, just how long, long a book did he want to read? Because that was quite a large book. And secondly, I that I was tired of Anglo-American relations, and I went off and wrote a book on wine, as it happens. But that whole idea of the imperial strand kept niggling at my brain. And I started reading around, and I took advice. Had this ever been done before? An Anglo-American questions of two empires? The answer came, no, it hadn't, and so I had to go. So what it does, even though the previous book certainly deals with the two world wars and so forth, it doesn't look, doesn't have time to look at the questions of the two, the two empires. Um, I'm, in a sense, that's a slightly false distinction. Uh, when is the military power uh, of uh, an empire uh, just the... Impo- you know military power of the United States, when does it become American Empire? I know that this is a can be a dicey sort of debatable line, but what I was interested in was looking at outside Europe, essentially outside of Europe outside of Latin America um areas where one didn't hadn't paid much attention and indeed, if you look at the number of books uh, about Japanese politics in the nineteenth century in English they don't actually litter the ground. So I must say I was most keen on the Japanese chapter. Uh, the learning curve was very high. And um, it was just utterly fascinating. And, and, and that if if someone is only going to read one chapter of that book, have a go at that one, because it will probably be the one that will produce the most new knowledge and, and the most interesting approaches of both the British and the American empires to a country they, in which they, had varying amounts
0: of interest in opening
2: up. Oh, my goodness, Professor. I would would think anyone who uh, ventures to get your book would uh, persevere and read the entire thing, not just one chapter. But um, let me ask you, what were the initial diplomatic issues between the the U.K. and the U.S.A. in the immediate post-1783 period?
1: well the point of, the, of 1783 is when the united states of course becomes an independent state and my argument was that it was an it was an empire from the very beginning if you look at definitions of empires i know americans on the whole don't like the idea of applying it to themselves having just torn themselves away from uh, from an empire but the point is here you still had british north america aka canada and uh, a new nation, and neither knew where the other began or the other, you know, the other finished. Neither—it's not that they—it's uh, not that they were immediately trying to grab land from each other. They had quite enough to do otherwise. But the first issue is how you actually define the line between these two empires, and that, in fact, excuse me, well, I cough. <coughs> That, in fact, takes up a good part until 1903. It's only in 1903 that the final parts the American and Canadian or British-North American boundaries are settled. It's it's a live issue. And as I said, uh, conflict between the two. Most people know about the Oregon Territory. um, But, you know, between New Brunswick and Maine was a continuing um, conflict. That's where you had the Great Lumberjack War, for example. Uh, conflicts over the Niagara boundary, uh, conflicts around uh, the Great Lakes. If you control the Great Lakes and you have your ships on it, you can attack, the, invade the other country. What people forget, I think, is that the United States and Great Britain fought two wars, uh, not only the Revolution but, of course, the War of 1812. And this meant that in various parts, whoever controlled a river or who controlled the outlook of a block do you see what I mean, Um, could determine military strength, military success. And so the first real issue was defining an acceptance by both sides of where the countries actually were.
2: And why was exactly the the Jay Treaty of uh, 1795, first um, treaty between the independent United States and uh, the United Kingdom, So unpopular in the USA.
1: Well, largely because the U.S. was convinced that it it had given up more than it ought to have done. I mean, Jay said that his his way from Washington home could be uh, lit by all the effigies. You know, um, his bodies being burned all the way through. It was uh, it was so unpopular. As you you said that Washington only wanted to be dealt with in secret by the Senate, but of course Washington was as leaky then as it is now, and the papers got hold of it. But essentially, because Americans thought it was their territory, this you know the decisions that had been made in terms of a boundary, and, and uh, it oughtn't to belong to Britain. Right? Uh, so I mean, it was fundamentally that that uh, um, and things uh, other issues between them, such as. Um, Impressment—that is to say—would um, could, jur- uh, could the British uh, take what they saw as British citizens off American merchant marines, uh, and and what is contraband? What what uh, what types of goods the Americans were trying to export, uh, especially during wartime? Uh, could the British legitimately say was uh, ought not to be shipped? All sorts of of issues like that that we have more or less forgotten about. Um, but were were great issues between a new country the United States that was trying to secure its its own borders its own security and also its uh, trading relationships um against a power that was infinitely more powerful than it was so the Jay Treaty uh, uh, did not solve a number of issues it solved other issues like where british forts were and were they american or were they british but what it left undone and had to be sorted out after the War of 1812 again was where were all these borders? Who, who which, What was Canada? What was the United States? And that dominated uh, probably the next 30 or 40 years.
2: What were the underlying diplomatic issues that caused the War of 1812? And why didn't diplomacy resolve uh, these issues beforehand?
1: Well, the issues uh, were essentially the impressment of, Amer- what the, of American citizens by by the british and the American refusal to uh um accept that i mean it's really one thing is really interesting uh, that in fact uh uh bedeviled relations between the two of them and it was really only settled um after the war of eighteen twelve is the American that somehow thought that once they were out of the British Empire. Nevertheless, they were going to be able to trade and to uh, do other economic activities within the empire as though they were still members. Um, in other words, the question of, of control of lands to dry, dry your fish in Canada, which uh, um, Americans thought was their right to do so, even though it was, uh, it was British imperial territory. Uh, the questions of whether you could trade with um, uh, very rich areas of... The you know Jamaica and, and the islands in the Caribbean. Uh, the thing is, <laughs> the Americans needed economic access to the British Empire, but they did not like having to conform with British requirements uh, because they thought they had the right to do it because they always had. It's very strange when you look back when you look back on it uh, the the American assumption that what they wanted to do was what was what God intended more or less. So. The War of 1812 dealt with uh, control of trade as much as anything. The reason diplomacy uh, didn't work uh, partly was the Americans' own fault, because uh, they wanted they thought that if they embargoed their trade to Britain, that somehow Britain was so dependent on the United States trade that they would give in. What happened, of course, is that under Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, the uh, America practically fell apart with New England in revolt and and uh federal laws being disobeyed and the Amer- and, and so forth and so on but it turned around british control of of certain areas of trade which the Americans did not like to conform to and the british impressment of american sailors whom they claimed were british they took them off american ships and put them on british warships um and essentially, they stumbled into war. Britain changed its economic rules. Uh, of course, remember that it took could take three months to get a ship across so that the people didn't really know what was happening. And um, once the British thought they changed, they thought once the Americans knew this, they would change uh, and not go to war, and this didn't happen. Because the other aspect was in the West. Who controlled the Mississippi, for example, was it going to be... Uh, um, British from Canada? Was it going to be the Americans? The Americans didn't like the British trying to set aside lands for, them, uh, for the Indians because they thought that should be American land if they wanted to settle it. Um, and so you had the, um, the, you know, the senators and congressmen in particular from the West with their own ideas from the South against uh, um, the you know, various Indians in what is now Florida in the North with trade. And so, and essentially you had a whole different regional areas came together with their own ideas and altogether it more or less pushed the United States into war.
2: Uh, you note that in the post-1815 period that American Anglophobia was not matched by British uh, hatred of uh, the United States or things American. Uh, why not?
1: Well, um, the American, you know, Anglophobia, uh, which you're you're quite right, dominated the uh, 19th century in many areas of the country. Although not all, not New England, for example. Um, in a sense, it's habit, isn't it? Which need and it takes something particular to break habits like that. Yeah, the British, British was mixed. I mean, there there were some people who were contemptuous of of the United States. Um, because of their, uh, well, the way they acted, the ferocious and bad nature of America and the, of politicians and of newspapers, for example, the fact that they seemed not to have any manners, the fact that they stole books, uh, and essentially were incredibly uh, nasty in both in speech and in press of um, Great Britain. On the other hand, the British... Um, Some you know quite admired the United States. There were a lot of of, um, people in the United Kingdom, uh, some of the working classes, for example, some of the more more liberal politicians who thought, who watched the American experiment with hopes that it would work. Um, And uh, but on the other hand, mostly Britain just ignored the United States. They were devoted to Britain, for example. Uh, So uh, they were very uh, and and they were question of whether the civil war was going to work or not, Um, you know, who was going to win was a a matter of great interest to the United Kingdom. But on the whole, they were worried about, they they had an empire they were building. The British had other things to think about. Um, The Americans continued to see Britain as the great enemy, and uh, therefore uh, they tended to be suspicious of the British, whereas the British tended to be more often than not indifferent to the Americans and of course the Americans didn't like that either.
2: Do you agree with uh, Professor Anthony Hopkins of Cambridge uh, in his new, newest book American Empire that in the pre-Civil War period the United States had a relationship vis-a-vis the UK which would be best described as neocolonial in nature?
1: Oh absolutely. I mean you know, uh, not in terms of, of political control but the United States during most of the 19th century was an economic colony of the United Kingdom. Uh, it depended on British financing just to get its, its you know southern cotton crop to market. Uh, British um, uh, American railway shares were a dominant element of um, uh, of the uh, uh, city of London you know financial uh, uh, stock exchanges because uh, they invested. They were in able, The Americans partly were able to and able to build their railways, especially in the earlier periods because uh Great Britain loaned the money uh it, 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 there in all sorts of economic areas uh, oh, how do I put this? Great Britain was ahead in terms of in inventiveness in terms of how you 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 know you uh do all sorts of things in in terms of mechanical engineering, and indeed uh Britain tried to stop certain types of of um craftsmen. From leaving the UK to come to the United States because they were bringing over British techniques that the Americans didn't have, but fundamentally, yes, it's an economic colony during most of the 19th century, largely because British financial power from the city of London was responsible for financing an awful lot of of, um, things in in the United States. in, certainly, in the West, uh, a lot of the land was owned by the British, you know, cattle ranches, and so forth. and The Americans thought this was wrong, wrong, wrong. The other way, of course, it's a it's a, a cultural colony as well. The uh, American publishers tended not to publish um, uh, American authors because they preferred to wait to hear things in the United Kingdom, uh, you know, what, how books were being received, and then pirate them, you know, print them without pr- permission. And indeed, a number of very famous American writers, uh, such as, as uh, um, uh, oh, uh, various poets and so forth, were not published in America until they had their books uh, favorably responded to in uh, the United Kingdom. Indeed, um, how do I put this? Some, Ezra Pound, for example, even at the turn of the nineteenth into the twentieth century, said that he was going to London, America's great cultural capital. In other words, they looked to the United Kingdom both for economic help and for literary and cultural uh, fashions. In the United Kingdom, were followed uh, the fact uh, um, all sorts of, of uh, intellectual intellectual relationships. So yes, um, it's still they still looked to the United Kingdom. Uh, for many of these elements, this all changed in the 20th century, of course. But it was very—I I agree with with Tony Hopkins very much. There, in fact, uh, we, we march as one along that one.
2: How did British, as opposed to American diplomacy differ vis-à-vis the Chinese Empire in the 19th century, up to say the 1890s?
1: Well. <laughs> The term used for American diplomacy vis-à-vis the British was referred to as piggyback, or hitchhiking, or jackal. That is to say, the Americans didn't really have any power. And during most of the 19th century, indeed, the State Department told the American diplomats they had to follow the British. The British had, you know, their fleet on the China Station um, was, of course, remember, the Royal Navy was was much. You know, it was much the biggest, most powerful in the world. The Americans, in Japan, they were lucky to have a ship a year call in. The American fleet, until later in the 19th century, was pathetically small. Remember that on the whole, Congress is, uh, did not want to spend money on either a standing army or on a navy, partly because they saw it as a threat to the republic. So when it came to abroad, until much later in the 19th century, they had to depend on Britain. Um, now, this is not necessarily the case with American merchants who, who were as red in tooth and claws uh, as the British merchants were, and uh, they certainly wish the Americans, uh, the American merchants, certainly wish that their own governments would provide a lot more power behind them. But essentially, they 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 had the the British and the Americans out in uh, in China work together, and there's another reason for that, which is. Neither the British nor the Americans wanted a political empire. They wanted economic access. They wanted, in fact, they quite like economic domination, although uh, Britain achieved this in the great Yangtze River Valley. The Americans never really did. They didn't want to take political control. Um, They didn't want the responsibility or spend the money or anything of that sort. And so they worked together against... French Empire, Russian Empire, German Empire, Japanese Empire, to try to prevent their taking actual physical control control of chunks of China. So they agreed on the predominance of economic interests, the uh, desire not to have to include uh, any sort of political domination, but also in uh, in, uh, the willingness, if necessary, and here's mostly the, uh, the British, to use force if necessary.
2: Uh, Now, how did that change in the 1890s up to, I suppose, including the uh, period covered by the John Hayes' open-door notes?
1: Well, essentially, um, by that time, you had real conflict between all the great powers. Excuse me a minute. Which, in fact, uh, it was called the China question. By that time, there was such conflict. Uh, China, by that time, had... had, uh, uh, It was in the last days of the Qing Empire, and there were one or two extremely good uh, politicians, Chinese politicians, Chinese um, leaders, who were good at playing them off, you know, playing the various powers, and they hoped to have American backing on this, and it didn't particularly work. But what you had there was essentially China becoming a battleground almost between the various um, uh, empires, but also you had a real huge. Um, Chinese Civil War going on at the same time, and uh, which ve- essentially the, uh, the foreign powers got caught in. But you had what eventually became the Chinese Revolution by 1911. In other words, uh, areas of China were out of control of the government, um, and it's a real maelstrom. And indeed, what you get, of course, in the late 1890s, the Boxer Rebellion, is rebellion against all the foreign missionaries, against their own uh, royal family. And uh, the boxers, the, the righteous fish, uh, fists of the boxers, thought that they had such power that they would not, they would be impervious to bullets. So you have China in a, falling into a, a, a ferocious civil war, but also attacking foreign powers. And indeed, uh, the boxers attacked uh, in Peking. Uh, attacked uh, the foreign legations, not in Peking, in the the uh, the, uh, port cities, uh, attacked foreign legations, uh, murdered the German ambassador and so forth. And you had the foreign powers then banding together and attacking the Chinese. So the the 1890s are a period when it's difficult to see who is actually exercising power um, because you had quite a lot of countries involved in trying to do this. And in this case, this is also a period when the Americans really do um, go for a military option. They work together. And in fact, they were some of the the more ferocious of the the fighters in the Boxer Rebellion against the
0: Chinese. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Why did Taft, President Taft and his Secretary of State, Knox uh, Dollar Diplomacy, um, so singularly in the case of China and uh, why do they view China in a different way than say uh, Roosevelt and Root who had a more realpolitik, if you want to use that expression, view of China?
1: Well essentially uh, uh, it depends on what elements of power you want to exercise and uh, they didn't want to, 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 to send troops and so forth out into China. They wanted to work together with the British, but they wanted they were interested in trade. They you know, the open door was meant to be, of course, opened all uh, in terms of, of of trade, and the other powers France, Germany, Japan wanted to make sure their own areas were closed. Uh, the other countries agreed with this, and then of course they all ignored it entirely. What? Uh, uh, What what, uh, Knox in particular, as Secretary of State, tried to do was to use American financial power in the way the other great powers used their own financial power. Uh, Russia managed to come through Siberia and down into the outskirts of China by financing railways. Uh, Japan tried to do the same through Manchuria by using financial power to get concessions from the Chinese government and to finance railways. And Knox thought that, A, you had this all this huge American financial power. Why didn't you get uh, bankers like J.P. Morgan to, you know, to come together and, and insist on having parts of all these uh, um, concessions, railway concessions and, and, and various sorts? What Knox wanted to do was to use American financial power to break in to China and to ex- exercise the power of a great power that he felt America deserved. The bankers were were uh, they were uh, thought this was awful a these various this one particular railway financial uh, uh um, financial agreement which Knox wanted the Americans to barge into uh the Americans thought you know this wasn't you didn't do this this wasn't a done thing it wasn't their issue, and you don't go um, to other financiers with whom you have great uh, relationships, such as the British, and say, "Right, here we are. We want, we want a piece of the action." And essentially, um, it didn't work very well. They finally allowed the Americans to come in, and then President Wilson is elected, and he thinks this is just appalling. So after all the angst and the aggro and and the work involved, he cancels any American part of it at all. So several years later, uh, the other uh, powers the other um <laughs> find that after they made all these concessions to the Americans, the whole thing is canceled. so this was a real attempt by the state by the American state to use private financial power. This is not foreign aid, this is financial power as a weapon in foreign policy, and it was done so badly uh, that it just failed. in fact, it was almost a laughing stock amongst you know, amongst bankers
2: Would it be accurate? to assert that the Americans played uh, the role of the British uh, in, um, open quote, opening up Japan, unquote, in the mid-19th century that the British played vis-a-vis the Chinese Empire?
1: Well, I think it, it, in, it although it was done differently, certainly uh, this was seen uh, from the American terms. Uh, President Millard Fillmore and, and uh, you yeah, know, Commodore Matthew Perry um, decided, in fact, in about 19, you know, in the early 1950s, 1951, that they wanted to open up Japan. There are various reasons for this. Uh, first of all, Japan was a very closed society. It did it allowed no visitors. It didn't allow its own people to leave. They were subject they they, they were subject to execution if they tried to leave the country. Japan was united, and it wanted to control not only its own territory but its own culture. They had seen what had happened to China, and they didn't want this to happen. Now, America, during that whole period, of course, was still near whale oil. So there are thousands of American ships out shooting whales, and when storms came, they might be thrown into the North Pacific Sea of Japan, crash on the beach, and what did the Japanese do? They would uh, not help them. They might uh, hunt them down and kill them, and the Americans wanted this to stop, Uh, They wanted access to trade with Japan. They were driven out, you know, this is always very important. They wanted the idea of being able to use Japan as a stop across the Pacific on the way for trading with China, some place to refuel, to get more coal, to take on water. And also, uh, Perry and President Fillmore consciously saw a breaking into Japan as a way to start taking over from Great Britain the control of the Pacific, Pacific Ocean was to be the American Lake. So this was going to be the first blow in trying to break up uh, uh, British, what they saw as British control of the Far East. So it it started with all sorts of of reasons for it to happen. The British didn't mind. The British thought, gosh, well, uh, the Americans want to do this, open it up to trade, that's great. We have enough to do in in, um, China, uh, the Japanese possibilities weren't going to be on the same planet, financial and economic uh, retaining. You know, after all, you had uh, tea out of China and silks out of China. What did you have out of Japan? And um, the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Malmesbury, said, no, that's fine. And if it works, we'll take advantage of it. And indeed, it didn't take long until Britain had, in fact, the supreme uh, position in Japan. But yes, America... Opened up Japan. Um, they uh, uh, Perry threatened to blow the place up, of course, um, but eventually, through negotiation, they by 1858 it was agreed that there would be a general a council, general the first the first foreign minister or first foreign diplomatic representative in Japan, and shortly thereafter there was a, a trade treaty agreed. But what also the Western powers wanted from China and from Japan was acknowledgement of their equality. Of the equi- I mean, uh, China didn't think uh, any of the Western powers; they were barbarians. That's what they were called. Japan fairly close to the same thing. And uh, uh, the Western powers uh, wanted to be be accepted as diplomatic equals. It took a long. It took more time well, it took more uh, quite a bit a, a number of years before Japan would agree to allow any representation in Tokyo Edo it was called then because this was this was where um, the Japanese center was and and no westerners no non Japanese were to be allowed but the other difference which people sometimes forget between China and Japan with regard to foreign powers one reason that Japan was never occupied um, or have any political control by the western powers japan uh, China was huge it had uh, it had something of an army, of course, but it was, uh, but much of the army was overwhelmed by opium and so forth japan there were, there were a quarter of a million highly trained samurai, in other words, there was uh, who hated foreigners. There was a defense force in Japan which the western powers with which it could not compete. So Japan managed to save its independence. It it was well most in Im- independence. It was forced to to give in to uh, what were called the unequal treaties, economic treaties, which only uh, were uh, re, you know re, uh, <laughs> withdrawn in the 1890s, modified in the 1890s. But Japan, I think, is rather admirable in the way that uh, it managed to keep itself together and, and keep its own.
2: did the British cabinet uh, force Lord Salisbury to negotiate the Venezuelan boundary dispute when Salisbury's own inclinations were to ignore the Americans' representation on behalf of the Venezuelans?
1: Well, uh, essentially, I mean, I won't go into the, the whole background because I find it intensely interesting, but it's a little bit complicated, is that uh, Venezuela was a lesser problem. That is to say, if you allow the uh, uh, negotiations and, and arbitration and so forth to go on with Venezuela, which the Americans saw as the British acknowledging their own, their own control over the Western Hemisphere, the British by this time knew that the two countries, that, uh, that is to say the United States and, and Great Britain, would never go to war. It would be like civil war. And because they agreed with the Americans in terms of economic openness, and uh, you know all the sorts of things which link the two countries together. They could let the Americans take care of it. That is to say, they they could if the Americans wanted to worry about the financial uh, misconduct of various Latin American governments. Fine, let them let them take care of it. That was now their responsibility. The other thing is, of course, is that by this time, which is eighteen ninety five ninety six, Britain was being Powers. Um, the, Briti- the British, by 1889, the British had decided that the Royal Navy had to be larger than the next two threatening navies, which would- were France and um, Russia, because France and Russia. でてて
2: which is viewed for the most part as a uh, singularly American idea was it not that in fact the case that Wilson to some extent derived the concept uh, from his hero Gladstone's um, idea of the concert of Europe?
1: Well of course it wasn't just Gladstone's idea the concert of Europe dated from the Congress of Vienna in 1815 uh, yes Gladstone was one of those the idea came as much from the British Foreign Secretary um, Sir Edward Grey who actually came up with the idea uh, and the term League of Nations was a, a British uh title or name and uh various of the British uh members of cabinet uh Sir Robert Cecil uh, the most famous uh spent a good deal of time putting together some of the ideas that uh, that Wilson then incorporated in other words it was uh it was Wilson's baby in that sense but yes, of the idea, of the ideas of some sort of, of, of uh, conventions. Remember the Hague Conventions, all these arbitration uh, treaties in the eighteen nineties, nearly nineteen hundreds that said things should not should be settled by uh, arbitration, not by war. There, in a sense, it was a, it was an idea of um, it, it's whose time had come. So uh, Wilson uh, was uh, a man who believed strongly in it. But it wasn't just from Wilson. It, it was from, I mean, there were, there were Dutch who were involved in this, for example. The idea of a concert of Europe was an idea that sort of floated around in Europe, but it wasn't really happening particularly particular, you see what I mean. Yes, yes. And, and, what, and uh, what the League of Nations brought, of course, was all for one and one for all, and collective security. In other words, we all fight if one of them, you know, it's like NATO now only it wasn't meant to be just a finan uh, just a, a military in fact the idea was that you wouldn't need to have a military response i mean the league of nations in fact was much more important in terms of helping uh the new states from you know from the versailles treaty get on their feet and find markets and and uh set up banks and that sort of thing uh sort of the unknown work of the league actually was very successful but the collective security aspect wasn't and uh, um problem with Wilson is he thought that that the you know, moral authority and public opinion would accomplish this, and as we could see very well, uh, people weren't as nice as he hoped they would be.
2: How did the Great War impact or change the nature of Anglo-American relations?
1: You don't ask small questions, do you? <laughs> um, well, first of all, it Brought the United States for the first time into what was fundamentally a European war. First time they had fought. I mean, they didn't fight very much. Uh, they you know, won uh, a skirmish or two and one battle in which they were on a quiet part of the line. But uh, uh, they had done their work in the First World War with all of the goods that they would provided uh, to the Allies, um, and in fact, the the the. Uh, Expectation of endless streams of Iowa farm boys to fight, was as much as anything, is what uh, meant uh, the, the Germans realized that once the U.S. was into the war, um, they didn't they didn't have any chance. It one major thing was that because Great Britain was financing not only its own. Um, uh, military and civilian populations, it was also guaranteeing or financing the same thing for the French and the Italians and the Belgians and the Russians and the Romanians and the Greeks. And it came close to bankrupting Britain. Now, the country which benefited, of course, was the United States. Not only were they selling all the goods that Britain was paying for for everyone else, uh, and, then expected, and then insisted that once they joined the war, they get repaid for all of this, hence the war debts. Um, they also, um, well, how do I put this? Britain also financed and, and uh, a great deal of American capital building. That is to say, all the factories which made the uh, the uh, rifles that Britain needed, or the shell factories, or the you know, aeroplane factories. Britain financed the building of of great many of them, in fact, and uh, as well as in Canada. So essentially, what happened is that because of the Great War. Britain lost its superior financial position and the United States gained it. In other words, super, uh, superior and inferior inferior financial positions, they traded each other because of the war. And in fact, um, that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. So uh, partly this brought the United States temporarily into the uh, idea uh, of, of a great power Uh, I don't think the United States was a great power during the 1920s. I think it was potential, but not a natural, because a great power needs both the uh, resources for it, but also needs a sustained will. And the United States did not have a sustained will to power. It withdrew, uh, in many respects, uh, isolation from Europe in any case, although not from Latin America. So... And the other thing that it was very important is that during the 1920s, it was probably the most ferocious um, period of Anglo-American hostility, certainly in the 20th century, because the Americans decided that since they were now such a great power, they ought to have a great navy. And uh, they thought at the same time there should be naval arms limitations. So what they wanted was for... Um, all the countries still uh, limit their capital ships, in other words, uh, limit battleships and so forth. And the British didn't mind in certain respects because they didn't have a lot of money to maintain um, what was by far the largest navy, and what had been the largest navy in the world, in fact, still was. But they saw the Americans as a way of getting naval equality on the cheap. In other words, if you stop Britain... Uh, Building any ships, the Americans uh, will then, of course, lever up as being uh, the equivalent of the, the Royal Navy, if not anything else. And there was huge hostility. Indeed, uh, there were comments by President Coolidge in 1927 that more or less threatened war. So, uh, uh, and indeed, it was uh, the British, the Foreign Office, said that uh, all the elements that have been, that all the factors that have existed. During history that bring powers to war all existed and that war between the United States the United Kingdom was not unthinkable so after what you got out of the second out of the the great war not only is a great weakening of the United Kingdom and of course a great strengthening of the United States but the beginning of sort of competition and and some cooperation during the interwar period as Britain tried to maintain its position the Americans uh didn't particularly try to expand, but they were not going to not going to give in any any cooperation with Britain that might maintain their position or their empire. And it's only really by about nineteen forty three that the United States emerges as the true the true superior in this two in, in the two, you know, the relationship between the two. So the roots of the change in the British Empire and the relationship between the United States and Great Britain Stems from the First World War. What the Second World War did was to confirm it.
2: You describe Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a quote Anglophobe unquote. Why is that?
1: Um, I don't remember saying that, but I, I certainly uh, I, I trust you on this one. Um, what he he disliked very much was the British Empire. Uh, he uh, agree, obviously uh, felt a close relationship, Anglo-American relationship between the two countries. Uh, they were, uh, in terms of, not only the language, but the, you know, the uh, political systems and so forth were, uh, uh, were the same. They they aren't, but they were seen as, as more like each other than any two other countries. Um, but Roosevelt very much disliked. They, he tried to... Um, uh, by making sure that Len Lease went straight to India, for example, rather than going through London. He did his best to lever India out of uh, out of the British Empire, uh, telling Churchill that he had some good ideas how to, to run India because the British obviously couldn't do it anymore. Uh, Churchill was a bit unhappy with this, uh, telling uh, saying that uh, um, to uh, uh, the British minister um, in 1941, I think, uh, certainly during the war, uh, saying that when you acquired uh, Hong Kong in 1841, although it wasn't, it was 1842, but when you acquired Hong Kong in the 1840s, it wasn't by purchase, was it? This was a war with China, and, and uh, the British official immediately responded this, uh, uh, excuse me, Mr. President, wasn't that about the time of the Mexican War, where, of course, the United States had conquered what became 15% of the current United States? there was a, there was a, a concerted push uh in a sense not precisely led by Roosevelt but certainly backed by him to try to break up the British Empire and uh so he wasn't an Anglophobe as such but he was certainly an imperialophobe.
2: You describe the UK as the quote um primary ally unquote of the USA in the post forty five period up to nineteen fifty six. Uh, why would that be?
1: Um, why were they so close allies after that, when uh, the United States had perceived Britain as a competitor during the previous centuries? Uh, largely from the well, two or three reasons. First of all, with the rise of the of the Soviet Union, with this new enemy in the East, it became quite clear that the, uh, the United States was going to have an ally. It was going to be Great Britain. It had the British Empire. Uh, which has strategic control over a great number of, P- uh, of areas of the world. And if Britain uh, uh, still occupied those territories, it was areas where the United States did not have to as they tried to contain the Soviet Union. Uh, secondly, of course, it's uh, the country, as I think I said earlier, that it survived the Second World War, with not being occupied or invaded or conquered. Uh, the only European power in the war, which that could be the case, still had a working economy, um, of course, a working political system. So it was a strong, dependable ally. And they both had global outlooks, which Britain still retains, of course, that you don't look inwardly, you look out at the world. And uh, British diplomatic expertise, uh, foreign office used to be referred to as the the Rolls Royce of uh, foreign ministries around the world, they could depend on that. national security, but to America's World War in particular, if America was the only democracy left, it would soon not be a democracy, it was feared, in the American government because they would have to so militarize themselves to defend themselves that um, civil society as they knew it would disappear. So British role, in a sense, was to help the United States not only secure the international area in its own favor but secure American security as well.
2: Do you believe in the Suez Crisis of 1956 that the Americans would have accepted a fait accompli uh, if the British had used force in a more effective and, I suppose, more importantly, quicker fashion?
1: Yes. I mean, uh, certainly when uh, uh, John Foster Dulles was in hospital after the Suez Crisis and the British... uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, one of the British officials, one of the British, uh, perhaps the ambassador, visited them. Foster Dulles said, why didn't you just continue going through and knock out Nasser? Why did you stop? Uh, well, of course, they stopped because the Americans not only cut off oil, but were allowing the pound to, to um, plummet. Without American help, um, the British would have, uh, the economy. Uh, you know, their currency was going to be in danger. Um, what, the, what the Americans disliked as much as anything, they had in uh, in in American um, diplomatic papers you can find a conversation between um John Foster Dulles the secretary of state and uh the British prime minister then Anthony Eden and Dulles says well whatever you do don't do it on the day of the presidential election so what happens they do it on the day of the presidential election i mean uh, what did what was it about no that they didn't didn 't realize, in other words, it was much i mean the Americans didn't like nasser either uh, they thought he was a danger, uh, but uh, they thought the British and this was a culmination of their feelings about British activities and abilities in in Middle East that the British were wrecking it, that they were doing it in ways that would make it uh even more difficult for the Americans to uh, um, Maintain their own uh, dominant position in in the Middle East. Um, so yes, I think although although the Americans said they wanted it peacefully, went through the United Nations and so forth, um, they understood why the British felt they had to maintain control the and the French, of course, and the Israelis control um, uh, or at least not, not if not even control uh, uh, a controlling overlook of the Suez Canal. This was the lifeline for Britain. It, not only is where oil came through, but to get to uh, Australia and New Zealand, other parts of the empire, you had to go through the Suez Canal. And losing control of that hit at the very center of British international power. And uh, in terms of oil, British domestic security as well. The Americans understood this, but they sometimes felt the British did things in a way that was just a danger both to themselves and to American interests. And, uh, it, But it was quite clear if they had managed to go through and, and uh, do it, the Americans would have accepted it. But the Americans put up barriers in a way that meant that Britain could not accomplish it.
2: Uh, would you agree with those who argue that uh, in November 1956, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Harold Macmillan, uh, in essence, um lost his head in terms of uh, the seriousness of the economic financial situation and uh, so misled his colleagues inadvertently or uh, not deliberately, of course.
1: Um, I don't think he lost his head in the sense he could see what was happening to the pound and he was letting the cabinet know where he was culpable and what, what really, what really, uh, well, I do not like his activities in that position, I will tell you. First of all, he was one of the real, um, uh, one of those who really pushed Suez. We've got to do this. We've got to stop Nasser. He encouraged. He was one of the forces behind the whole Suez uh, attack. Then, of course, when he sees what's happening, then he tries to say, we can't do this. We've got to stop. And thirdly, then, he facilitates the removal of Anthony Eden as prime minister and um, his own substitution by working behind Eden's back with President Eisenhower. So I think uh, this was not, to say the least, Macmillan's finest
2: hour. So you would agree with people like uh, Scott Lucas, who argue that there was sort of a um, uh, bit of skullduggery, for lack of that expression, in the removal of Eden between uh, Macmillan's Salisbury and uh, the American ambassador Aldridge?
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, Scott is, is more ferocious about it than than I might be. Um, and, I mean, the thing is, Eden was ill. He'd had this gallbladder operation, and it had been badly done, and, and bile kept uh, you know uh, leaking into his blood, and he was on tablets, and he had, in many respects, um, his own officials uh, wrote their diaries, and they thought Eden was going around the bend, quite frankly. So you could argue that this was seen as a way of uh, helping Britain, of getting this man out of out of office who was who was they saw as a danger to the British government, but this does not obviate the fact that it was a backroom decision by the American president, the American ambassador, and uh, uh two dominant members of the British Conservative Party, one of whom was really going to benefit because he became the prime minister uh, oh, I guess well, what I'm saying is that is that in politics there's often no uh, uh, no a way that one can be proud of doing to get th- to get things done that there's it's uh, sometimes when you know the, the reasons of state are seen as more dominant than personal uh personal probity and i think this is probably one of those times
2: a uh, sort of bismarckian uh, view of uh, not laws being akin to making sausages something that one shouldn't really view if you have a weak stomach <laughs>
1: Well, not at all times, no. But yes, I I mean Bismarck had his had his uh, uh, um, his his approach and 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 little ways. But he certainly knew how to exercise power and when not to exercise power. Um, You can I mean once he left, that Germany became a real danger. If you see what I mean, he was a he was a a man who believed in balance. so, in that sense, uh, I think sausages are probably irrelevant to this particular thing. It's just that, A, they thought that Eden had been a danger, they thought uh, was was a danger, and um, he had to be gotten rid of, and it could be justified because he was an ill man, I suppose. And, of course, the whole Suez crisis thing uh, was... There's a photograph in my book, I think, that shows a huge Trafalgar Square, full of people arguing against, against Suez. It was almost as bad a, a, a crisis in dividing the British nation as Iraq was later, um, as Brexit is now. You know, families breaking up over it, people not speaking to each other over it. It was a, it was a very bad time, in British domestic and foreign policy. And uh, some of these um, uh, powerful members of the Conservative Party blamed Eden for a great part of it. His lack of judgment, his, his uh, forging ahead when perhaps it ought not to have been forged. You know, and members of the foreign office on the day of Suez, many of them wore black armbands in mourning. They could see what was going to happen. Most, you know, uh, many of the um, members of the military forces did not want to do it, and they argued against it. But Eden drove it through, even without, he didn't even have a full cabinet around him when he did it.
2: Uh, it be on the... Penultimate section of the book, you discuss the withdrawal by the UK of uh, east of Suez. Could not it be argued that that decision by the Harold Wilson government in 1967 was, in essence, using the sterling crisis of the same year as a political cover for a political rather than an economic decision? Oh,
1: that's well, oh, that it, it's a whole, it's a complicated. I mean, what one has to keep in mind is. One thing is to have a foreign policy or a military power policy. You need money. Uh, the British pound, uh, pound sterling, for 15 years had been having uh, sterling crises virtually every year. Um, Britain was existing on on well, Bank of England was was taking loans from other central banks, including from uh, from um, the Federal Bank, the Federal Reserve, um, and Eventually, Wilson decided that you could not continue to exist hand to mouth on essentially short term money. I mean, this was a difficult thing because it was during the Vietnam War, of course, and President Johnson was putting ferocious pressure on um, the British government uh, to become part, you know, to, to, to send troops to Vietnam. Uh, the British resisted this. A good part of the Labour Party, the, you know, the backbenchers in you know, the, the members of the House of the House of Commons, mem- members of the Labour Party, a hundred of them had signed a petition saying, "We will not support uh, Britain joining uh, um, the Vietnam War." Uh, America wanted Britain in the Vietnam War, and they wanted America east of Suez because they didn't want to be the only white power in the Vietnam War. They wanted. Uh, Johnson said, "All we all we wanted was, you know, a, 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 ba- a, a platoon of bagpipers would would have been enough. We just wanted uh, we just wanted the British flag out there next to the American flag. So uh, when the pound was under its final uh, threats in in 1967, the Americans offered to loan money, but only if Britain would go out." what was called East of Suez, which included Singapore. And that's when the British said no, uh, they couldn't. The financial position was just too dire. And uh, so I don't think it was a cover. I think it was it was the final push. The British were already cutting back on uh, military. They decided they were not going to be buying American jets because they just couldn't afford them. The Americans didn't accept this. They thought the British were not acting as the British ought to do. Um, at the same time, of course, uh, um, in uh, the United States, paying both for the Great Society and the Vietnam War uh, caused America three years later to go off the gold standard. Uh, one reason the Americans didn't want Britain to what was called devalue the pound, in other words, the pound um, after November 1967 would only buy uh, $2.40 and 2 dollars uh, and when before it had been $2.80, um, the reason they didn't want Britain to lower the value of the pound because uh, they feared that once this had happened, all the speculators would turn and attack the American dollar. And, of course, this is what happened. So the Americans, um, the, the whole idea of uh, 67, the devaluation, the financial crisis, and the devaluation of the pound was not a cover. It's just, you just can't, they could not afford the empire anymore. They couldn't afford... Um, hardly any foreign policy by that time and indeed the subsequent decade was a period of appalling financial mess in Great Britain. The Americans in a sense refused to accept this. They, they thought their financial power could keep Britain going as long as Britain accorded with the United States foreign policy imper- imperatives.
2: If you wanted uh, people, Professor, to take um, one thing away from your book, what would it be?
1: Um, well i suppose uh the long relationship of the two powers uh the fact that um, their relationship and the interactivity was a major element in the whole founding of as whole development of, of uh modern international history um that you can't understand international you know, world history one might say in the 19th and 20th and now 20th, 20th centuries without understanding how not only the conflict but the interrelationship of the power of the two uh, was exercised but at this time you also have to see what happens it's unusual because Britain eventually was a declining power America was a rising power but this is the first time in history that the declining empire handed on consciously you know the uh, sort of the Um, torch of supreme power to the rising empire without a war being fought between them. In other words, this is unusual, in fact, nearly unique. Well, you can't be nearly unique, let's say unique, in that um, the flow of power during this period and between these two was so supported by what they had in common their empires were essentially white. The fact that they were private enterprise, not state-led. The fact of, of they were economically driven. The fact that um, they tried, although at least tried sometimes, to provide some benefits, although they sometimes thought foreign countries didn't appreciate how good they were. Uh, this is it's, it's, it's a unique period in international history because they were both dominant during their periods of time. Um, what they said and did in many areas was the most important decisions taken, but also to take away the empire's end. And if you cannot pay for them, you don't have them. If you lose the will to empire, you're going to lose the empire. And we can take that away uh, in thinking about current events, I think.
2: Thank you very much, Professor. I would like to uh, thank you for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you again, Professor. Thank you.